Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Muriel Young is the manager and co-owner of Raleigh's Family Restaurant in Hope, British Columbia. They've been around for a long time, and I've read the reviews of the restaurant. They get great reviews from their customers in Hope, British Columbia. One week ago, Raleigh's Family Restaurant publicly stated their staff will not ask anyone for proof of vaccination or vaccine passports. The cost would be too great. In response, the British Columbia government and regional health authorities have lowered the boom on Raleigh's, which still remains in business. Muriel Young, manager and co-owner of Raleigh's, joins us. Ms. Young, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Roy. Well, it's good to talk to you. What's the situation? What are you facing now in the last week? What's what's happened as far as the health authorities and the provincial government challenging your decision is concerned? Well, I, I told them I, when they brought in the, the passport mandate, I told them, I said, I've, I've adhered to all of your mandates. I we do the sanitizing. I've hired two kids for the summer sterilized menus. I, I put plants on every other table so that it's for distancing. I opened a patio because it went broke with that. I've, I've done it all. We're wearing masks. The cooks are dying out there in masks. Everything you've asked except this illegal request for this. I have to say that your medical situation is not my business. So that's what I said. So I haven't been asking for the passports. I'm swamped with people because they can't get into other restaurants and it's not my doing, it's the government's doing. And people are very appreciative of that. You can get a square meal. I have a truck driver who says he has to drive three days before he gets back from back east where he can get in and eat and things like that. So, the Kohar is what's next. It's, it's, um, I hear somebody's had a chain on their door. If I take the chain down, I'm looking at prison, but I can't tell you what's next because they've been very good to me. I feel sorry for the the guys that have to come around, the health inspectors. You can tell that they, they're they not particularly caring for the job they're doing, and they've been very nice to me, but I'm getting a $345 fine every time they drop in, which is two or three times a week. And the town itself has levied a $100 a day. They've taken my license, my business license, and they've levied a $100 a day fine. So they've taken your business license and your liquor license. And my liquor license, and, and that's a six-month thing. But I, I'm a breakfast place. I'm, I'm, I'm breakfast all day restaurant. I have a dinner menu. So it's a family restaurant, and I can live without the liquor. Yeah. So, so and do I, and I, I did, haven't. I just ignored that. I've lost it for at least six months. I don't know quite what uh, what I'll have to go through to get. Hoping that it'll be all over by then. Who knows uh, what's next with the government? And they, if I understand correctly, you said they fine you two hundred dollars each time a health inspector comes. Three hundred and forty-five dollars. Three hundred and forty-five. And and a hundred and a hundred dollars a week as well. A hundred dollars a day from. Hundred dollars a day. How have you stayed in business? I don't know how long I can stay in business, but people have been donating, and and I, 
I just thought, well, I, I, uh, they'll probably make me pay that fine to the town. But I, I'm trying to get in with uh, Action for Canada. I'm actually doing Action for Canada, and I'm hoping I can get into a class action on all this so that they can prolong it until the mess is cleaned up. Now, Global News is reporting there was uh, quite a demonstration in your support outside uh, Holly's. There was yesterday. There's Raleigh's. been a second one. There's yeah. quite a crowd yesterday. How long have you been uh, in that location? We built it in for, for Expo in 86. So, so clearly you never expected to be facing a situation such as the one you are. And now you find yourself no. in, in conflict with with authorities and... I can't. I, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult this is for you. So I have to ask well, you. I have to ask you this question. You, you know, I have to ask this question. Why not just do it? Why not just ask the customers for certification? Because their your health status is none of my business. It, 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 I don't need to know what your health status is, whether or not you've been circumcised or, or have a health have had COVID shot. It's none of my business. And you were it's taking care of it. I really shouldn't. I shouldn't really be. Once it became clear that masks are not working anyway, and now they've got people. Someone in Vancouver just this week. Someone told me. Now this is hearsay, but that there's a seniors' home in Vancouver, and they, it's not getting on the news. But they, every over 90 people in this place, or 91 of them have COVID. They've all been jabbed. Tell me how it's working. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm interested in your situation because I see you okay. as a small business owner who's running a restaurant in a, in, a, in a comfortable community in British Columbia. And you find yourself in the middle of this COVID panic, uh, pan, pandemic, and you've tried to stay in business. And I've talked to Dan Kelly of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who's actually listening right now as well about how difficult it is for restaurant owners. And I've talked to restaurant owners on this program, and, and they've told us, Muriel, about uh, having dipped into their own credit cards and their own credit lines in order to pay their employees because they didn't want to let their employees go. So they went further into debt uh, in, into, you know, because they wanted to take care of their employees. You sound to me, just me speaking to you, you sound to me like a person who would do that. Yes, um, I don't know how long I can last, but I've had quite a lot of help from the, from the. I've, I'm not standing alone, and I think that showed with the crowd yesterday. I think a lot of those people thought they might very well be the only. No one else is like-minded, but there was a crowd out there to show that we're not standing alone. Are, this, is, this is not. Do, do you have concerns that they're just going to come with a, uh, with a lock and, and lock your premises and not let you operate any longer? Well, I can't. Well, it, it could happen, I'm sure, but I cannot be concerned about it. It'll give me a heart stroke. So I need to just care, go with the role and stand for what I believe in, and I don't believe that I should be asking people for their health mandate. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in the mandate, but I should ask for their passport. Do you have uh, legal representation? Well, I'm hoping to um, action for Canada that I will be represented. If you had an opportunity to speak, speak to the... Uh provincial health minister or the premier, what would you say to them? I would probably say, tell me what your 
think about your agenda. They're not going to tell me. But think about the agenda that you're on here. Well, where, where do you expect this to end and what, what's your big plan here? Because this looks bigger than we are, Roy. Yeah, I'm, I've read about your restaurant. And I, if I were in Hope, I'd be going to Raleigh's. Well, that's kind of you to say that, but you can. But a lot no, of people because, are coming because, because they don't have to be asked. Because people like you. They're on that. People clearly like you, and they like the food, and they like the ambiance, and they like the fact that you're there and you've been there for a long time. I would say to you as well, but you don't want this advice from me. I, I would say to you, just make life easier for yourself, Muriel, and uh, and ask for the COVID vaccination certificate. But that would just be me with. You know, unsolicited advice, but would I come to eat at your restaurant? Yes, I certainly would. Well, it's kind of you to say that, but how can I, if you and your wife come to my door with a company, invited company, and you suddenly realize the company doesn't isn't doesn't have a yeah, I know. pass. I know. And then I say you cannot come in. Yeah. You'll you'll go over to the local grocery store, all miffed, and shop together in a lineup. And figure out what you're going to make for dinner. There's no. It, I, I find it's out of common sense. Yeah, it's it's so hard for for you. You're you're an entrepreneur. You're you're placed into a very difficult situation. And we've been hearing about angry customers confronting staff at restaurants who are asking them yep. for the certification, which the health authorities and the politicians are requiring. The governments are requiring, and it places the restaurant owner and the workers at the restaurant directly in the line of, of fire, of anger. And um, Muriel, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I thank you for coming on. I, I wish you all the best. Well, I thank you very much, Roy. And we, we've, we've, so far, we've had far more positive responses than negative, but we do run on prayer in there, and we hope that we can see this through with grace. Let's talk about the uh, global supply chain. It is straining. And Global News reports Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland says Canada is watching the situation, quote, very, very closely, end quote, as uh, Canadian ports uh, on the impact of businesses as the world continues to struggle with a COVID-19 supply chain crunch that has snarled everything from appliance parts to car tires and semiconductors. Freeland spoke from the Canadian Embassy in Washington, following meetings with U.S. lawmakers. The meetings took place amid heightened concerns about shortages of a range of things due to what Freeland called the, quote, uneven, end quote, reopening of global, global economies that were quickly shuttered in varying degrees starting in March of 2020 to limit the spread of COVID-19. In other words, it's coming home to roost. So how snarled are things? And how concerned should we be? And what are we facing? My good friend Ron Foxcroft joins us, chairman of Fox 40 Industries, Canadian manufacturing firm, Fox 40 Whistles and the uh, Whistle Mask and so many other products, Fox 40 products, does business in 140 countries. And I know that uh, Ron is feeling the supply uh, chain stress. He's also the chairman of Tradeport International. They're managing John C. Monroe International Airport in Hamilton, which is Canada's most busy goods transport airport, and LaGuardia Airport in New York City. So I can't think of anybody more uh, informed to talk uh, to about this supply chain issue. Ron, thank you for the time. And what's a, just an overview of how and where, first first question, overview of how and where supply chain is, is most stressed. 
Well, Roy, uh, it's uh, very, very concerning. It's a very, very busy time. And, you know, I've often said on your show, and by the way, I, I want to applaud you on, on your show and the quality of guests that you've had this week. But, Roy, I don't want to be one of those guests that uh, gives you a problem but doesn't give you a solution. The, the situation right now is very serious on the uh, supply chain. Yes, we service, we're a Canadian manufacturing company. We service 140 countries. We're also a trucking company involved in trucking, warehousing, and logistics. So we're living it. And many times on your show, I've said, you know, if you want to know something about a truck, you don't ask the owner of the trucking company. You ask the mechanic or driver who are working on the trucks. And in this case, yes, we are living it, Roy. And and I'm going to tell you something. Everything is in a very serious situation, and, and that is a, a, a real serious problem. What happened, you can't solve the problem if you don't recognize the problem. And what happened in March and April 2020, basically manufacturing came to an abrupt halt, an abrupt start, and there were no levels of inventory left. So uh, suddenly, uh, in April 2020, there became this pent-up demand for necessities in life and, and supplies. And just as you said, uh, car parts, groceries, toilet paper, and so on, now there's this pent-up demand. However, the problem is this. Uh, we have lost the safety, the labor force, during COVID. COVID have, have had a very serious impact on the supply chain management and for about four or five reasons. Number one, safety and health. People don't want to go back to work because they fear their safety and their health. During COVID, people are looking at work-life balance and say, you know what, I don't think I want to go back to work and risk getting COVID. Others, there's government subsidies. They're at home and I'm not being critical of government subsidies, but people are getting government subsidies and saying, this is kind of nice. I can stay home and watch the Leafs on TV and get a government subsidy. Also, anti-vaxxers are being eliminated from the labor force. So basically, Roy, we haven't got the labor force right now and the ability to bring these inventory levels up to the levels that we need to provide Canadians with the necessities of life. So if I talk to one of your truck mechanics, what's he going to tell me? He's going to say, well, one of them is going to say, I'm going to go back to work, but I'm going to evaluate the work-life balance. Do I want to work a 12-hour shift and risk getting COVID? Others are going to say, you know, the government subsidy is a really good thing. I'd rather stay home and get the government subsidies. So... Here's the other thing. This really impacts the supply chain. And I'll give you an example. Corrugated steel, uh, and, and these are really important because we package for 140, uh, we, we commercially package for 140 countries, and we need corrugated and we need paper. Corrugated, they can't produce it enough. We're on a 28% allocation to get corrugated. And we have to make packaging to put our product in the package to go out to 140 countries. Steel, 
One steel supplier said to us, we have to put our prices up 50% because our costs are going up. And I made the comment, well, we've been partners for years. And they said, yes, we've been partners for years. This isn't about partnership. This is about survival. Well, if I ask Ron Foxcroft about, um, you know, let's say I have a truck. And I say to you, Ron, and we've been friends for 30 years, so I, so, I, so I go to bank on our friendship, and I say, Ron, I need this certain part for my truck. I know you've got those parts. Can I get one? You're going to say to me, we don't have them, or we have them in very short supply. Is that right? That's exactly, and that goes for everything, Roy, in the necessities everything. of life. And um, I, would, I would challenge your listeners to... Study what they paid for the necessities of life in 2019. For yeah. example, toilet paper and what they're going to pay today and what they're going to pay in 2022. And for a multitude of reasons, Roy, I would have to say to your listeners, and they're going to send you emails and say, Ron Foxcroft needs to be committed to the funny farm for what he's going to say. But, Roy, groceries necessity of life, car parts, uh, cost of homes, cost of shelter are going up in 2022 because of the supply chain challenges at least a minimum of 20%. And for example, what? if you go to the gas station today, yeah, the I price did. is just about six bucks a gallon. I paid $1.76.9 a liter. Yes, yes. Exactly, Roy. Now, if you add in corrugated paper, uh, groceries, uh, toilet paper, and, and so on, everybody is scrambling to get their inventory levels up. Now, here's another problem in southern Ontario. In southern Ontario, they're trying to get the inventory levels up because there's an increased demand. People are staying home they're doing things at home more than they ever did before, like home renovations. I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. On March 6, 2020, I returned from a trip and went out and, and bought a new suitcase. Roy, I haven't traveled since then, and I don't need that new suitcase. So the money Canadians are saving on vacations, which they haven't taken, travel and so on, are going into things like fixing their car, home renovations, and so on. Now, if, if you said to me, can I get a truck? Roy, also, there's a lot of renegade truckers out there that can't get insurance, can't afford the price of fuel, and can't hire drivers. And when they do... They hire these drivers, and this has been recorded in the Bay Observer, a really good newspaper in Hamilton, Ontario. They're teaching their drivers to avoid health and safety uh, routines and avoid the scales. Okay. Avoid, uh, you know, the, the scales that make sure that you're yeah. running safe and sound uh, on the highways. So, so, Ron, we have, if I understand correctly, hundreds of huge ships are lined up waiting to unload at harbors where they can't get enough people to work and, and get them unloaded, get them offloaded. You also, um, you, you, in, in a note to me, 
You wrote, suppliers are not able to give notice of short shipments because the mills are not doing so, and prices are increasing with every order, so companies are stockpiling, and this is adding to the shortage. So there's there's a shortage of supplies, and there's a hoarding of the supplies that exist, yes? That's absolutely true, Roy. And another thing you just uh, hit on a very good uh, subject, we have to start being less dependent on offshore manufacturing and more dependent on establishing solid solid manufacturing bases in Canada or the very short thing, uh, established manufacturing, uh, shall we say, partnerships in, in the United States, less dependent on offshore. I'm going to give you an example. A friend of mine brings in a sea container into the port in Los Angeles, and pre-COVID, it cost them for a 40-foot container $5,000. Same product, same container today, $25,000. Plus, he can't get it on time. So we have to uh, really appreciate we are very competent as Canadians. Now, let's go out there and more be more dependent on manufacturing and manufacturing processes in Canada. Roy, can I take just a minute and tell you, we got a phone call from the NBA, and and they said to us, we need protective pouches over top of the whistle to eliminate the droplets coming out of the whistle. Now, they weren't asking us. They were telling us. So we could go offshore and, and make that product and possibly wait forever wait forever for that product to arrive instead we turned on a dime and you have to turn on a dime if you're in a business in canada if you're an entrepreneur and we sought out this amazing manufacturing company in hamilton called nico apparel a fellow named joe camillo we made the protective pouches now we made a patented protective whistle mask that are using being used in sport all over the world. Yeah, and it is a success story because you moved it fast. You moved fast on it. You got it done, and, and it really is a massive international sports success story. That's what we need. How do we, though, Ron, what's the short-term, if there is, what is the short-term, I'll use the word solution, perhaps I should use the word approach. What's the short-term approach to unclogging the bottleneck and getting the supplies moving again before people find themselves in a fiscal emergency. Turning on a dime, Roy, we have to think like entrepreneurs. And, you know, I'm not one to be critical of government, but you know how, how government works. Government can't turn on a dime just because of the process. You know, you have to turn on a dime, and and uh, you have to move uh, uh, very quickly, and as I just said previously, we have to start encouraging our entrepreneurs to expand their uh, manufacturing capabilities in Canada. Also, we have to support our education process to to turn out more skilled trade workers. For example, we need more skilled trade. We need more truck drivers. But we need to promote more Canadian manufacturing. Do you also, though, need, I mean, you need supplies. And isn't that what is causing the the, the issue or much of the issue? The supplies aren't there. And, Uh, and, and, And your trucks, everything you've said was many times, everything that you touch has been on a truck. Yes. Everything. Yes. 
and and I hear trucking advertising going on. Okay. Yes. From major trucking firms trying to lure truckers to go and work for them, and I'm thinking. If they're trying to lure truckers to go work for them, they're trying to lure them from another company. So employee poaching going on? How do you get around that? Oh, there's a lot of employee. You've you've touched on a very interesting. Employees right now are like free agents. If, If you're experienced and you're capable... You're probably going to be poached uh, from and go from pillar to post. This is another real problem. That's why the government have to be aware that they have to keep promoting Canadian companies, Canadian manufacturing companies, because these companies, such as our company, we don't take our profits and invest in buying a sailboat to sail around the Caribbean. We have to invest in HR, HR training, technology, capital improvements, and making our company stronger so we can be a stronger manufacturing company. We just have to be stronger corporately in Canada and have the government realize they have to promote entrepreneurs and small business in Canada. I have 10 seconds here. 2022. More expensive, right? 2022, Roy, your your listeners aren't going to want to hear this, but their groceries and necessities are going up minimum 20%, and I'm really sorry to have to say that. There was a news story on Global News earlier today. It's still there on the globalnews.ca. We're not prepared what it takes to recover from long COVID. Uh, Susie Golding is a long COVID patient. She's the founder of a long COVID patient website also Facebook pages, and her website is now on the Public Health Agency of Canada and uh, Alberta Health Services website, and it's uh, covidlonghaulcanada.com. Susie, how are you? Hi, Roy. Hi. I'm pretty good today, actually, not doing too bad. Um, A lot of my symptoms have resolved. I still find that I have some issues. Most of my symptoms were neurologically based, and so it's difficult for me to have um, have conversations sometimes. And when I do, let's say, a Zoom call for an hour, my head starts throbbing at the end of it. So I still do have symptoms, um, but they have some of them have resolved and some of them stay on. Now, how long has this been going on for you? Uh, this is 18 months now. Wow. I remember the first time we talked and at that time, in much of the medical profession, there was really no uh, no sense that this was a really serious issue. But clearly, we know now that it is. I was just looking at the at the global story. Uh, around 37% of COVID-19 sufferers will report continued symptoms like fatigue or breathing problems three to six months later. This is according to an Oxford University study. They go on to say that this would suggest that around 600,000 Canadians likely had lingering symptoms given how many people have caught the disease over the course of the pandemic. That's a big number. Well, yeah, and you can probably add a lot more to that number considering a lot of people aren't even counted. So that's with people that they're counting. They did a study in BC a year ago which uh, led to the consensus that 80% of the people weren't being uh, counted as they tested, weren't tested. So the, the number is a lot bigger than what they were, they're thinking. And it, it can be uh, extremely debil- debilitating, yes? Yes, absolutely. There's many people that are bedridden. Um, you know, we have people within our group that 
are bedridden at 18 months into this. So it's not a across the board type of disease where everybody suffers the same consequences. Everybody suffers from different symptoms and from varying degree of symptoms. And it's also an episodic illness where you can be doing well a couple of days and then you overdo yourself and you overdo it. And then you end up sort of regressing and going backwards and, you know, being much worse off than you were. So you have to really be careful how you manage your energy output. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So what do we need to know? If somebody's listening to this program right now and they have just at the other end of COVID feeling coming out of it, but they're still not feeling right um, what do they need to know? What do they need to do? First of all, it's really important to get tested. So if you're feeling wonky, a bit off, um, you know, can present as a cold. Really, it's it's important to get the PCR test because later on, it can prove really difficult to prove that you've had COVID, which will then not allow you to get into a lot of the um, post-COVID care center clinics that are popping up or any research. So it's really important to get tested. Number two is to really manage your symptoms and err on the side of caution, Um, reserve your energies and really try to educate yourself about the symptoms that you're having. I think a really good thing to do is to monitor yourself and write the symptoms down and make a catalog of what's going on because nobody knows when they get COVID who is going to be a long hauler. So it's just really important to get on top of things if you do feel like you're coming down with something to get tested right away and to, you know, keep a, a good eye and and um, and write your symptoms down so that you can, you know, present this later on to, to, to the medical people. All right, so progress is being made. Progress is being made. Yes, it's very slow and it's, uh, you know, it's a lot slower than the numbers that are compiling. So there are huge wait lines to get into, to, to get any kind kind of care. There's still a lot of um, information that's not really being disseminated from the top down at a rapid pace. So it makes it difficult for um, medical people to, to get hold of this information and to understand even really what a definition of a long hauler is and how to recognize it. So, um, so it becomes quite difficult. Sorry, I sometimes get still get uh, caught up in the middle of my sentence and forget what the question was. And that's just what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, can you tell us, please, what, uh, what we'll find on your Facebook pages and, uh, and on the website? Yes, we uh, were over 14,000 members in our main group. We have a few different groups now. Um, We come together and support one another. Uh, There's a lot of information where we post the relevant, um, we work with a lot of the researchers. So we have the the latest of the studies that are happening, the research um, that, you know, we're trying to help science as best we can to join these um, studies uh, with their efforts, as well as we post all the latest clinics that are opening. Um, And we really guide one another. You know, there's people that are much further on in their journey than people who are just joining the group. And so we offer advice and what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, There's valuable information from other communities as well as um, long-term post-viral conditions such as ME-CFS and um, different things like that. So Mm -hmm. there's there's a a lot of valuable information to help you along your journey. Um, As well as we're focused, we have focal groups that um, you know, for each of the different provinces, as well as for Indigenous peoples. 
um, we put a focus on having uh, an indigenous group to sort of put a, a to, to focus on marginalized communities and, and to try and provide cultural appropriateness. And there's a lot of barriers with geographic isolation and people in rural communi communities. And so, you know, these, these compiling issues can make healthcare really difficult to, uh, an incredible obstacle for, for people to overcome. So we just want to be uh, available to everyone and let people know. I mean, the bottom line is that you don't have to be alone through this. There's a lot of information and we're here to help mm -hmm. um, as well as to receive each other without judgment. So it's COVID Long Haulers Support Group Canada. That's one uh, Facebook page, COVID Long Haulers Support Group Canada. Another one is Long COVID Kids Canada, Long COVID Kids Canada. And the webpage is um, uh, covidlonghaulcanada.com. And there's also COVID Long Haulers Indigenous Support Group, as uh, Susie just said, on Facebook. The capacity to manufacture on a very large scale had eroded over the last 20 years. For example, AstraZeneca closed their manufacturing facility in Canada in 2007 when Mr. Harper was prime minister, and then their research facility in Montreal in 2012. This tendency uh, to send to other jurisdictions the massive biomanufacturing capacity means that Canada has to procure massive quantities of the vaccines. Dominic LeBlanc, the federal government minister, speaking to uh, the West Block on global television. Paul Lucas is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada. Paul, thank you very much uh, for coming back on the program. This is how we met over this Dominic LeBlanc <laughs> yes, quote. Yes, Roy. It goes back quite a while now, but uh, that's exactly what stimulated all of this. And, and, and you reacted in an op-ed, so would you please uh, remind Canadians of just how wrong Mr. LeBlanc is and what he said. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the more I think about it, and I think the Fifth Estate in their expose uh, last week was uh, was very uh, eye-opening uh, and confirmed everything we expected or suspected. Um, Dominic LeBlanc stated that we didn't have any vaccine manufacturing in Canada, and, and he lied about that. I, I want to be straightforward. He lied about that. And the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, did the same thing. He stood up and said, we, we don't have a COVID vaccine because we don't have any vaccine manufacturing in Canada. That, that's an out-and-out -out lie. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline has been in Canada manufacturing flu vaccines for years and still does. Sanofi uh, Pasteur has been in Toronto uh, for decades and manufactures many vaccines. Um, and uh, there are a number of other smaller organizations that produce vaccines as well. So uh, we, we clearly do have vaccine manufacturing capability. It's just that the Trudeau government, as I said in my op-ed uh, over a year ago, um, they they didn't have a relationship with the pharmaceutical industry and didn't even know what capability we had in Canada. That's very disturbing. When the government doesn't know what the manufacturing capability is, and we've done interviews. I mean, I've spoken with you on a number of occasions. I've also talked to independent uh, research and uh, production facility owners who have said, we're ready, we're ready to go. Um, and, and yet now we have Ottawa, the federal government, having made spent millions to upgrade the National Research Council facilities in Montreal, uh, which had signed the CanSino Biologics deal early in, uh, was it May of, of last year, 
And the quote was, to fast-track the availability of a COVID vaccine for Canadians. To my understanding, the NRC hasn't produced even one vaccine. No, they haven't. And, you know, I, I just shake my head, and I think Canadians need to as well. I, I, you know, I think this is just one more example of the Trudeau government um, making announcements and making pronouncements and never delivering. And it's happened on many files, and this NRC situation is just another one. You know, they stood up and said that that facility that they were building would produce 250,000 doses by November 2020. That didn't happen. They then, in August 2020, said it would be producing 2 million doses by the middle of 2021, and that's never happened. Uh, And now they're saying, well, it'll produce vaccines by sometime in 2022. So it's just another bad example of the Trudeau government not coming through on what they announce. And I, you know, I, I think we've got to start to understand as Canadians that this government seems to think we're all stupid and that we'll believe anything they say. And all it takes is throwing a few hundred millions of dollars at things and everything will be great. And, and it, they never deliver. It's disturbing to hear you. Uh, a respected senior executive, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, certainly in this country, GSK, listening to a current federal minister on a news talk program on global television, the West Block, as you say, you said he's lying. So he's looking into the cameras, to quote you, Paul, and lying to Canadians. Yeah, and I, you know, that's a strong word, but it, the reality is it's true. And Prime Minister Trudeau did exactly the same thing, even more directly, um, not too long after that, when the CanSino deal fell apart. Uh, that was the pronouncement that the reason we don't have COVID vaccines is because we have no manufacturing of vaccines in Canada. Um, so, so it is quite disturbing. Uh, and there's a long history of having no relationship with the pharmaceutical sector in Canada. Um, and, and that was one of the fundamental problems. And, you know, I think we need to be skeptical about, um, about the whole plan around vaccine manufacturing in Canada. The Trudeau government made a number of announcements with respect to uh, new uh, vaccine capability in manufacturing with the NRC, but also with Sanofi and Moderna and Medicago and so on. Uh, but I think we have to be skeptical. Um, you know, it was good to see the Fifth Estate actually do the expose they did. And that's one of the things that got me going again and realized that, you know, this is a serious problem. Um, but I, I think further investigations need to be done. We need to track what this government does and see if they actually ever deliver on anything they say. I haven't heard a peep about vaccine manufacturing since the election. Uh, it's still one of our biggest issues. Um, I suspect they'll just move on to some other file. But we need to follow up and make sure that they actually deliver on what they said they uh, would do because they have spent about a billion dollars in Canadians' money uh, in announcements, which, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, I feel very strongly that those announcements were made because an election was coming. And they're not exactly really clear as to what's happening. So I could go on in much detail about each one of them, but I won't won't do that because I don't think you have the time. 
Well, we can just say the National Research Council was to begin, this is just one example, was to begin producing 250,000 doses of vaccine in November of 2020. This was according to the industry minister, Navdi Baines, in a news conference on the 31st of August last year. And just to repeat, the NRC has not produced anything yet, not one vaccine, never mind 250,000 a month since November. No, and I, I called them on that after they made that announcement uh, on the Evan Solomon show. Um, and just said there is no way they will ever get that vaccine manufacturing facility up and running and producing vaccines in that short period of time. Anybody that knows anything about manufacturing of pharmaceuticals or vaccines knows and knew that that was completely impossible. And particularly if it's being done by a government agency. You know, industry has enough t- trouble uh, building and producing vaccines, but having a government agency do it, I think we can expect uh, a lot of issues along the way. I started to think about what you told us about what GSK did when under your jurisdiction or your, your leadership in 2009. Remind us about that. Yeah, uh, first of all, I mean, let me say that uh, Dominic LeBlanc actually um, talks about AstraZeneca shutting down their manufacturing facility. Well, they never manufactured vaccines in Canada to begin with, so that was that was somewhat misleading as well. But if I go back to 2009 and the H1N1 pandemic that hit Canada that most people have forgotten about, actually, uh, GlaxoSmithKline had the contract to produce um, the pandemic flu vaccine for all of Canada. Uh, which we did, and we did that very quickly, and actually in a few months, and uh, worked very closely with um, with the um, uh, PHAC uh, in Ottawa, who who was led by a very competent lead at that time, David Butler Jones. I had a lot of respect for him, but we worked together and rolled that vaccine out, and very quickly vaccinated a big percentage of the Canadian population. So it was a it was a massive success for Canada. Somehow. This liberal government forgot about that one. It's it's amazing. I just go back to what you just started to say, that he said that that uh, uh, which company was it that had stopped manufacturing? AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca, and they never manufactured in the first place. No, they never manufactured vaccines in Canada. <laughs> There's another story circulating about Mr. LeBlanc, and that is that five individuals who have a relationship of some kind with him became judges somehow mm. in this country. And that's not been pursued, even though the prime minister, when he was questioned about it, said everything was done according to the book. We're not sure which book it is. Um, What are your thoughts about the advisability, given the international political reality and the um, manufacturing challenges and uh, the getting them out to international countries, they being vaccines, what do you think the advisability was for Canada to start to do business with China to create a, a vaccine for Canadians and put all the eggs in one basket. Well, I think you and I talked about this way back then. And, you know, I, I, my view at the time was that was a very foolish thing to do. And I think that uh, turned out to be right. Um, you know, unfortunately, Roy, what, what has happened in Canada and has happened in other countries, I'm sure, the, the Chinese have infiltrated our universities to begin with. Um, and, and that's a fact. Um, you know, there's been some pushback on that because we've realized as a country that uh, by infiltrating our universities, they've basically accumulated a lot of our intellectual property, um, and, and they basically take it. 
they end up with our intellectual property that we generate through our tax investment in Canadian researchers. As a result, Canadian researchers are quite naive about um, the relationship with China and, and quite like it. And I think in this case, uh, Scott Halpern down in Dalhousie, who runs the Center for Vaccinology down there, who I know, and he's, he's a very well-respected researcher, but he's not a politician. Um, and he clearly, along with the NRC and the Trudeau government, underestimated China's um, intentions, I guess, as to what they wanted to accomplish uh, from a political point of view. So... Uh, Despite the fact that CSIS warned the government uh, that this could be a potential problem in terms of working with China and developing a vaccine, they all ignored it. And, of course, we know where that all ended up uh, in, a, in a significant failure and put us behind the eight ball, really, in terms of acquiring vaccines, uh, which also disturbs me. You know, we, we missed the opportunity as Canadians to hold the Trudeau government accountable for being so late in acquiring vaccines when that should never have happened. No, it should not. And that was a, a lead topic for months of the beginning of this year, and somehow it just fell to the wayside. So let's let me ask you this. What could Canada's pharmaceutical industry have been accomplishing as far as producing a vaccine is concerned while we waited for the CanSino vaccine deal to somehow materialize? Well, I think there's two components to that. Um, you know, because there was no relationship, the federal government didn't know what the capability was to begin with. So they hadn't talked to the companies until the pandemic exploded, basically. So it was almost it was almost too late to get anything going, uh, you know, locally in Canada. If they had had a relationship, they would have been having these discussions, you know, years ago in terms of anticipating another pandemic. Because between myself and the head of Sanofi Pasteur and uh, PHAC Canada, we all agreed during the 2009 pandemic that having one manufacturer of the pandemic flu vaccine was crazy. We needed more suppliers. So we all agreed that we needed another supplier, and Sanofi is going to build their new facility in Canada as a result of that. But, you know, there should have been better planning um for this pandemic and we should have been in an opportunity we should have been in a position to take uh, take advantage of relationships that we should have had to have capability here in canada to make a vaccine here in canada but we missed all that bad planning bad strategy what was remind us please what was the relationship how did the relationship fail between the trudeau governments both of them pierre and justin were the pharmaceutical industry in this country. Yeah, it's an interesting history, and I've written about this, but, uh, you know, it goes back to Pierre Trudeau and his government when he eliminated patent protection for pharmaceuticals in Canada. So what happened was that saw Canada lose a significant amount of its pharmaceutical research and manufacturing at that time. Um, it, it wasn't until Mulroney got into power where he tried to restore some of the patent protection, and when he did that, the, the industry actually started to increase its investment. In fact, it increased it over a billion dollars in a very short period of time. Unfortunately, when Chrétien came in, and this was a problem with successive liberal governments. We saw it with Pierre Trudeau and then uh, Mr. Chrétien, and now with Justin Trudeau. That 
that party was very connected to the generic pharmaceutical industry, and Barry Sherman in particular. Uh, the Liberal Party of Canada benefited significantly from its relationship with the generic pharmaceutical okay, Paul, industry. Paul, I'm sorry. I have to, I have to stop here because yep. you know how it is with the clock. And I'm not very good at watching it. I'm very bad at it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.